Welcome to Teach Musically, the music studio teacher's resource for business and pedagogy solutions. My name is Leanne. And I'm Michelle. If you've been a follower of our podcast, you know that we've always advocated for the use of detailed studio policies. It sets the tone for your studio and gives your clients a clear list of your rules and expectations. While many clients respect our policies, there are also those that will challenge you and ask for exceptions. This is one of the most difficult things to deal with as a private teacher. It causes us a lot of stress and discomfort. I think we can agree that music teachers want to focus on the music and the children and not deal with confrontations and arguments with parents about payments, makeup lessons, or other issues. Unfortunately, these situations are inevitable, so it is best to be prepared with responses that are clear, professional, and firm. Easier said than done. Today, we'll talk about the most common areas in our business that can cause conflicts with parents. Leanne, why do you think it is so difficult for so many music teachers to set clear boundaries with clients? I think it's tricky because music teaching naturally becomes such a personal relationship. When we work one-on-one with a student for a number of years, we naturally will become close to that student and their family. In some cases, we might even develop a friendship, and often we can't help but see our students as friends and children that we really care about. This makes setting boundaries a little bit tougher at times. Finding a balance between creating a nurturing relationship while also setting professional boundaries is tough. With practice, we can become more confident and assertive in enforcing our policies and standing up for ourselves. Let's talk about some of the most common issues that come up with clients and how we've dealt with them. Let's start with makeup lessons. While most teachers now have a clear policy in this area that won't stop clients from asking for exceptions. First thing is first, if a parent cancels last second and they do not qualify for any kind of makeup class, I don't even acknowledge it. I will just say something like, okay, no problem, see you next week. Then when the next month rolls around, I will just charge them as usual. I don't want to create any conflict or say something like, well, you're going to have to pay for the lesson. It kind of creates a bad energy and might make them feel like you don't care about them and that you only care about money. True, and hopefully they will not bring it up either because they know your policy and have agreed to it. However, if they do bring it up, try to keep the response neutral and factual. I'd say something like, as per my policy, I can't offer a makeup lesson at this time. This is I also like this response because we're not apologizing. I think if we say something like, oh, I'm really sorry, but I can't, it was late notice, I don't think it's fair something like that. We don't appear confident. We sound like we can be easily swayed or manipulated or that there's room for negotiation. If a client keeps pushing you, you can follow up with something like, it simply would not be fair to the rest of my students who follow this policy. Remember to give simple statements that are to the point and leave no room for negotiation. I think many parents have a difficult time understanding why music teachers are so strict with their makeup policies. It is important for parents to understand that they are not really just paying for a lesson, but rather also paying to reserve a weekly time slot in your schedule. Yes, that is such a good point, and that shift in mindset can help parents understand and respect our policies. I actually remember reading a short article written by a professor of economics. He has a son who's enrolled in piano lessons, and he wrote this really nice explanation as to why it's fair, from an economist's point of view, for a parent to pay for missed lessons. Wow, he sounds like a dream client. How did he explain it? It's a little bit long, but I do want to read a lot of it because it's so interesting. And I think this way of thinking would be really helpful for other teachers. So here's what he says. He says, in my other life, I am an economist and teach at our local university. Students pay good money to attend class at the university. 
but if they don't come to my lecture on Monday morning, I'm not going to turn around and deliver them a private tutorial on Tuesday afternoon. When I go to the store and buy groceries, I may purchase something that doesn't get used. Days or months later, I end up throwing it out. I don't get a refund from the grocery store for the unused merchandise. If I sign my child up for swimming lessons at the local pool and they refuse to return after the first lesson, I can't get my money back. So there are lots of situations in our everyday lives where we regularly pay in advance for goods or services. And if we end up not using what we have purchased, we just have to swallow our losses. On the other hand, if I purchase an item of clothing and get home and change my mind, I can take it back and expect either a refund or a store credit. So why do I believe that music lessons fall into the first category of non-returnable merchandise rather than into the second case of exchange privileges unlimited? Speaking now as an economist, I would claim that the reason is that items like clothing are durable goods, meaning that they can be returned and resold at the original price. Whereas music lessons are non-durable goods, meaning once Monday at 3.30 is gone, my son's teacher cannot turn around and sell the time again. The only way she would be able to give him a lesson later in the week would be if she were to give up time that she had scheduled for her own private life, and that seems pretty unreasonable. I can't think of many employees who would be thrilled if their bosses were to announce that they couldn't work from 3.30 to 4.30 this afternoon, but would they please stay till 6.30 on Thursday because there will be work for them then. He goes on to say, During May, my eldest son will be missing three lessons because he's going to accompany me on a trip to New Zealand to visit his grandparents. I do not expect my son's teacher to refund me for those missed lessons or to reschedule them by doubling up lessons in the weeks before or after. Since there will be lots of advance notice, I might ask her to consider preparing a special practice tape for that period or to answer my questions via email. If she doesn't have the time and she refuses, that's fine. I certainly don't expect her to credit me with three makeup lessons. There is no way for her to find a student to fill a three-week hole in her schedule during our absence. Instead, I hope she will enjoy the extra hour of rest during those three weeks and that we will all feel renewed enthusiasm when we return to lessons at the end of our trip. Wow, that is so well said and it makes a lot of sense. I think another comparison we can make is car payments or a mortgage payment. If a parent goes on vacation for two weeks and they're not living in their home or using their car, do they still have to pay those expenses? Of course! Their car and their home belongs to them and them only. It is impossible or very difficult to find someone to use these amenities for such a short period of time. Not to mention that with any other extracurricular activity like dance, karate, or swimming lessons, if you miss the class, you simply miss the benefit of that lesson. There is no refunds, credits, or makeups. Very true. Okay, let's talk about late fees. In an ideal world, we would all have studios of clients who pay on time every month. They would understand that teaching is our livelihood and we rely on prompt payments to pay our bills. However, many parents lead busy lives and can sometimes, or often, forget to pay us on time. In order to enforce timely payments, we may have to use a late fee. In order to avoid any arguments with parents about late fees, I like to build up to the fee very slowly. What I mean by that is I give them plenty of chances and warnings before I actually apply the fee. That way they won't feel blindsided. The first step is to make sure it's in my studio policy. Next, I'll give gentle reminders such as, please provide payment by the first of the month so we can avoid the late fee. After that, I will apply the fee. This can be followed up with a conversation with the parent. Something like, is there a system we can come up with to ensure your payment is on time? Then this puts you and the parent on the same side with the same goal, paying on time to avoid the fee. You may explore different ways to remind them of their payment, 
email, text message, WhatsApp. Everyone has different preferences on how to communicate. So if you email your invoices, but this parent would do better if they received a text, it might be a better idea to text them the invoice. You may also consider some sort of auto payment system where money is automatically deducted from the client's account or charged to their credit card monthly. I know many teachers swear by this and it saves them a lot of time and headache. I've also heard of some teachers who use some reverse psychology in this situation. They tell their client that if they pay before a certain date, they will receive a discount. Really, the discount is just the normal rate and the non-discounted rate is an inflated rate. People are more motivated to pay early if they are getting a quote discount. Very clever. You can also use this system for parents who want to pay week to week instead of monthly. Most teachers collect payments once a month or maybe even less often just to simplify and minimize the accounting. However, some parents request to pay more often like every week or every two weeks. It can get really confusing if you have different families on different payment schedules. To avoid this, you can offer a discount for paying a monthly fee and a higher rate for paying week to week. If a parent does end up choosing week to week, at least you're getting compensated for that extra administrative work. Yes, good point. Let's move away from payments and policies now. Sometimes parents can disagree with us about a student's practice regime, how much or how little to practice, how to practice or what to practice. Yes, I have found that there are two main schools of thought. The first is a parent who thinks that if they force their child to practice, that their child won't like music lessons. The other is a parent who demands too much practice time from their child and it becomes unproductive. For the first type of parent, I like to explain that beginners have two main paths that they can go down. In the first path, the parent gently pushes the student to practice. The student sees results and is able to learn new material every week. The lessons flow smoothly and the rate of progress is steady. The child is happy and the momentum is building, a sort of snowball effect. The second path is one where a student does not practice. They come to lessons each week having forgotten many concepts. The same things need to be taught week after week, and the student becomes bored and frustrated and eventually loses interest. Yep, that's exactly how I explain it too. It's also valuable to explain to parents that music is such a unique activity in that it is one of the few that requires independent practice outside of the weekly lesson. Many parents also choose to sign their child up for music lessons because it has so many cognitive benefits. I also like to mention that those benefits aren't going to happen unless they're actually spending time practicing. That is so true. On the opposite end of the spectrum are parents that demand unnecessary amount of practice from their child. This parent likely has the best of intentions and believes that more practice means more progress. In many cases, that is true, but with young children at the beginner level, we need to be careful. I think it's so important to emphasize that quality is more important than quantity. I have a couple of students right now who practice one hour a day, but when I hear them at their lesson each week, it doesn't sound like that's what's happening at all. I can tell that they are overworked and that they're tired. They're simply going through the motions for an hour. I would actually prefer if they practiced less, maybe 30 minutes, but with lots of focus. Exactly. Quality over quantity. We can explain to parents that we should focus on setting a weekly musical goal instead of reaching a certain number of hours practiced. Perhaps you and your student can write down a goal for each element of the homework. For example, this week your goal for the sonatina is to play the whole piece fluently at the metronome speed of 80. Your goal for technique is to memorize the E major and F major scales. I think that would be really helpful for both students and parents. That way they can easily shift their focus towards a concrete goal instead of these arbitrary practice times. 
Some parents that encourage their child to overpractice may do so because they want their child to progress faster. I think we've all encountered a parent who is in a big rush to finish music lessons. They want their child to skip levels or move at an accelerated pace. How do you handle this? In general, I like to emphasize that music learning is never truly finished. There will always be more that you can learn. In terms of accelerating too quickly, I like to explain that students who move forward too quickly will miss key concepts and will not have enough time to fully develop the foundational skills. This means that even though they are at a high level, they could be missing a lot of information that makes the level very difficult for them. At the end of the day, they are at a higher level on paper, but in reality, they will likely struggle and become frustrated. Exactly. They may rush to get to level 10, but completing level 10 will take so much longer. At the end of their studies, they'll leave with less skills and less appreciation for music. Parents may have a preconceived notion of how quickly their child should progress based on how quickly their friend's child progressed. These comparisons can come up sometimes and can create an awkward dynamic between teacher and parent. Yeah, you may get a question like, my daughter's friend's completing level 6 in 3 months. Why can't my daughter do that? I think it is important to remember that this often comes from a place of curiosity rather than criticism. In school settings, children are all learning and progressing at the same rate. With private music study, it varies a lot depending on the student, their quality of practice, and their overall commitment to the lessons. Yes, it's important that we explain to parents that every student learns at a different pace. It's also important to note that every teacher has their own method and approach. There's not necessarily a right or wrong way to teach. Each teacher has the same goal, but there are so many different ways we can get there. I think it's okay to acknowledge that we may also not be the best fit for each student. Today's conversation was definitely a good reflection of how teaching music involves educating parents almost as much as the children. It is important that we have patience and kindness with our clients and include them in the learning process from day one. With clear, open, and honest communication, it is possible to avoid or quickly solve many of these common conflicts we discussed today. We hope you found this podcast helpful. What are some of the most common conflicts that arise within your clientele? How do you handle them? Let us know in the comments. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe for more great podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and online at teachmusically.com. Until next time, happy teaching!